We are closing out our real life relationship series and uh, we'll be talking about the church as family as you saw in that nifty video. Our, our passage today is from Ephesians chapter 2. We'll be reading from verses 17 to 22. Ephesians chapter 2 verses 17 to 22. It'll be projected overhead for you. You could turn there in your phone apps, your Bibles, all of it. I'll read this for us. And may God, the Holy Spirit, bless the reading and preaching of his word. Ephesians chapter two, verse 17. And he, that is Jesus, came and preached peace to you who were far off and peace to those who were near. For through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So then, you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him, you are also being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. This is God's word. In this passage in Ephesians chapter 2, we see this beautiful picture of what Jesus does. We see this beautiful picture of the fact that because of his death on the cross, through his shed blood, because of his perfect righteousness, that which we all fail to even come close to, he reconciles us to God. He brings peace for us with God. He lived the life we failed to live. He died the death that you and I deserve. And because of his actions, not ours, we have access, as Paul says, to the Father, to our Heavenly Father. But please note the language in our passage, and I'm sure you caught it, especially as you saw that the sermon today is about the church as family, that there is this uh, very clear language of community throughout this passage. This, this, this passage is not just about how Jesus saves you as an individual, just as an individual, just makes you uh, a personal believer, as important as that is. But we see clearly there's language like joined together, built up together. Together we become fellow citizens of the heavenly kingdom. And of course, I want to note especially this language of we become family. We become as Paul says, the household of God. And that's just a simply another way of saying the family of God. We are given access to the Father. And if you pay attention even to the teachings of Jesus uh, earlier in the Gospels in the New Testament, it's, it becomes clear pretty early on that Jesus came not just to create individual believers. That was never his intention, simply to create just individual believers. One believer here, one believer here, one believer here. He came to create a community. He came to create what many theologians call an alternative family. Not just some institution, not just some club, not just some social gathering, not just some event, but he came to create a family. That's what we see throughout all the scriptures from Jesus' own teachings, which we'll explore later. And Paul just continues that line of thought, that the church is a family. The church is the household of God. And maybe for many of you, or maybe all of you, that's not anything new. Maybe you've called, you know, oh yeah, the church is a family. We call the church a family. Um, you know, maybe you refer to the church, especially some of the younger folks, you know, you've referred to the church as your fam, right? 
not, maybe it's not new for many of you, but I want us to just pause and just to think, if the church really is to be a family, that's a big deal. That's a big deal. Because for Jesus in his time, the family was the most important societal structure that anyone could be a part of. And it's not that much different for us today. If for all of you, probably, family is the most important structure you're probably a part of or you seek to be a part of. And for Jesus to say, the church is a family. For Paul to say, because of what Jesus has done, especially on that cross, you are now part of the household of God, the family of God. There's some major implications there. That's a big deal. And so today I just want to explore three implications of what it means if the church is really to be a family. Three implications for us if the church is to really be a family. Here's the first one. The first implication for you and me as we read Ephesians 2 is this. If the church is to be a family, the church is not simply about your individual journey. Makes sense, right? If the church is about, family is never just about the individual. Family is a very communal thing. It's never just about uh, just my spiritual journey, my faith, my growth, my betterment as a person or as a Christian. If I believe that the church is a family, then that's never all it's about. It's never simply just that. The third century church leader, Cyprian, one of the early church fathers, he once said very famously that you cannot have God as your father without the church as your mother. Or how about the Westminster Confession? I actually have it written for us in this projection. Uh, Westminster Confession of Faith, chapter 25. This is what we adhere to uh, in our denomination as uh, uh, a summary of Christian doctrine. And part two of chapter 25 says this. The visible church is the kingdom of the Lord Jesus Christ, the house and family of God. There's that language again. Here's a part I actually want to focus on out of which there is no ordinary possibility of salvation. Those are some bold words. The Westminster divines who who crafted this great summary of doctrine, they're saying ordinarily, keyword ordinarily, there's not even salvation outside of the church. And of course, you know, you might, you're, I'm, I'm sure all of you who are very, you know, philosophically thinking all these hypotheticals, of course, you know, if some non-Christian got deserted on an island by himself and a Bible happened to wash up on shore and he reads the Bible and comes to Jesus, of course he can be saved, of course, with no community, with no church, with no family. But the point of the Westminster Confession is ordinarily, typically, usually, the way God typically operates in the hearts of his people is within this community, this family called the church. And be it Cyprian who said the thing about the church as mother or the Westminster divines who said that ordinarily there's no salvation outside of the church. I'm sure of this, that when they said those big, bold words, they were not saying, uh, when they speak of the church as this place that you just go to. Right? They're not just saying, well, uh, the church is your mother, so you just have to go to church. No, right? They're not, that's not what they're talking about. They're talking about being part of this community, being part of this family. That's when, that's when we really experience the fullness of our faith, the fullness of our salvation. That's when we really experience the fullness of even our experience of God. We actually read that in verse 22 of our text, the last verse that we read. Paul says, in him you are also being built together into a dwelling place for God. 
He didn't say, you guys as individuals are all dwelling places of God. He says, when you're built together in this family and community language, that's when actually you experience the, full, the fullness of the presence of God. That's when God fully dwells in this being built together. And I hope that for all of us, we hear the voice of Jesus calling, saying, you can't just like me, but not like my bride. Right? Nobody can come to my house and be like, hey, I just want to hang out with you. Can you tell Priscilla to like, just go in the other room? Right, unless it's like some major counseling or something. You can't do that, right? I'll get mad. Priscilla will get madder, right? You can't just love the husband, but not the wife. You can't just love the groom, but not the bride. You can't know a person's head, which is Christ, but not his body, which is the church, which is the family of God. You can't know the father without knowing the mother. In other words, it's, it's, I'm, gonna, I'm just going to give it to you straight. I'm going to give it to you straight. In other words, it's, it's simply not enough to just be a Sunday churchgoer. I have to say it. It's not enough to just be a, a church attendee. Someone who just comes to church. Where church is just this place I go to, and that's really it. Or church is just this event that I, that I sit through, and that's really it. Not because Christ Central says so, or any of the pastors say so, or because we have some programs that say so. No, because Christ says so. Because the Apostle Paul says so. Because this language is, is steeped in, in Ephesians 2 with this idea that it's not enough. That if the church is the household of God, if we're really to be a family, it can't just be about my individual journey. That I don't walk just by myself, just me and Jesus. It's just all about me and Jesus. That can never be the case. You know, you, uh, I've been asked so many times, you know, like, especially younger uh, guys, they like to ask this question. You know, why do I have to actually be part of a church? Why can't I, you know, there's so many great sermons online. Why, don't I, why can't I just listen to sermons online? I could just praise God and worship God at home. And they totally miss the, 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 the thrust of all the scriptures when they ask me that. They miss all of this. They're missing all of this that the church is called to be a family. We experience the fullness of the presence and the dwelling of God when we are built together, when we have a true sense of this is, this, this, what I do here is not just about my individual journey. And we experience the love and compassion of God when I actually practice love and compassion with my brothers and sisters. We experience in a very poignant, special way the forgiveness that we have in the gospel when I can actually forgive my brothers and sisters who annoy me and rub me the wrong way. And as a community, as family, we actually can rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep as we are called to do in Romans 12. That's a beautiful picture of what a family looks like. Who weeps with you? That's your family. Who rejoices and celebrates you and celebrates with you in the good times? That's your family. Do we have that? Do you have that at, at this church, at your church? I was uh, talking to a pastor earlier this week. We were at a pastor's retreat, and he told me this anecdote about um, his own church. How there, you know, all churches have this, and I'm not trying to call anybody out. Uh, but it's just a reality that, that, you know, he has people at his own church who kind of just come and go, who are relatively anonymous, who don't really know anybody and, and nobody knows them, but they come and, they, and they, they come regularly. 
And he tells me that that's, you know, I'm like, you could get by like that. That's fine. You know, I mean, it's not good, but you could get by. You'll, you'll still live. But he says, it really, the rubber meets the road when crisis comes. He was telling me how certain, certain people at his church, you know, it's when, it's when the tragedy hits, when, when they lose a loved one, when somebody gets really sick. And then all of a sudden, they real, it becomes very apparent to them. Here at this place, the church, where we have every resource to have hope even in the midst of death. Here at church, where I have every comfort because we believe in the God of all comfort. I don't know anybody and nobody knows me. And he told me his own challenge as a pastor, uh, how hard it is to, to really comfort and counsel somebody when you don't even know them. And he's like trying to get to know them while he's doing that. I'm not trying to scare you, but I think that is a practical implication of what we're called to be as a family. Do you have people who rejoice with you? Do you have people who weep with you, who mourn with you? And the beauty is, that's what the church is called to be, and that's what the church is for so many of you. I'm so thankful for that. But I want that for all of you. And not only do you get to receive that, but you get the privilege of actually being that for others, that you can stand alongside those. As, as you've hurt in the past, now you can help those who are hurting now. And you can rejoice for the sake of others. It's a wonderful privilege that only family gets to have. And that's what the church is called to be. That's the first implication. If the church really is a family, it's, it's not, it can never simply just be about your individual journey, just your individual faith, just you and Jesus. But here's the second implication. This one probably, I think, will hit home for more of us. Implication number two. If the church is to be a family, then the church is not simply about your family unit. If the church is a family, then the church is not simply about just your family, your blood family, your biological family, your, married, your marriage and your kids. It can never be just about that. That's a big one. That's a big one. And, and of course, just to begin, I don't have to argue or, or try to prove to you how important the family unit actually is. We believe that. We all believe that. That uh, throughout the scriptures, we see countless calls uh, for, to, to love and be faithful to your spouse. We see many calls from God to be good parents, to love your children. We see that family is a gift from God, marriage, children. These, these are all gifts from God rooted in creation. We even see Paul tell Timothy that all Christians should take care of their immediate families in 1 Timothy 5. So, of course, I don't have to argue that hard that that family is important. The family unit is important. But we cannot stop there. If we believe what Paul says here in Ephesians 2, that we are the household of God, and if we believe the words of Jesus, we can't stop there. Let me give you just a few passages of Jesus' sayings, even about his own family unit and about the family unit. We need to really pay careful attention to some of these things because this really shapes how we view even the church. Let's start with Luke chapter 8. In Luke chapter 8, Jesus is uh, preaching to a, crowd, a group of people, this crowd, and you know, they're gathering around him, and he's preaching the gospel. He's telling about them about the kingdom of God. And while he's preaching, his actual biological mother, uh, his family unit arrive, his mother and his brothers and his sisters. And they arrive, but because of the crowds, they can't really get to him while he's preaching. And someone actually comes up, and they see what's going on. They come up to Jesus and say, they say to Jesus, 
hey, uh, your, your mother and your brothers and your sisters are here. They're here, they're here. But pay attention to them. And Jesus, if he's a good Jew, or even if he's a good Asian, or even just a good traditional American, he's, he's, gonna, he's gonna pause. He's gonna go, oh, my family's here? And he's gonna take a moment and say, hey, guys, this is, this is my mom, this is my brothers, my sisters. And, and he's gonna take a moment to really acknowledge them, to care for them, to make them the priority here. That's what a good Jew would do. That's what I think most of us would think a good person would do. But Jesus, he, he flips it on us. He says in Luke chapter 8, verse 21, he concludes, in other accounts, even from Mark, he actually starts by saying, who are my brothers and mothers? Who are they? Right? And he concludes in Luke 8, 21, as you can see up there, he answered them, my mother and my brothers, and this also includes my sisters, are those who hear the word of God and do it. Instead of saying, oh, yeah, my family's here. Here they are. They're great. Let's, let's, everyone, can you just take a moment to acknowledge them? He says, no, no, no. My mother, my brothers, my sisters are these guys, these people here who hear the word of God into it. This community, this is my family. This is my family. That's a big deal, what he just did right here. Right? Especially, I would say, the Jewish culture, even more so than any traditional culture now. That would be a big faux pas that he would do that. I want to go further. In Luke chapter 11, very similar situation. Jesus is preaching. He must be preaching really well. He must be fired up because someone in the crowd, uh, this random woman, just decides to exclaim, blessed is the womb that bore you and the breasts at which you nursed. In other words, dude, you're preaching fire. Your mom must be so blessed. Right? She, just, she just exclaims that in Luke chapter 11, this, this woman. And this is a perfect opportunity, once again, for Jesus to say, you know what? She is pretty blessed. She's a pretty great woman. And he could really take this opportunity to praise his mother. And he gets hashtag, you are appreciated, right? He could have done that. But he doesn't. Blessed is your mother. Blessed is the womb that bore you. And you know what Jesus says instead? He says, blessed rather, rather. It's a big rather. Blessed rather are those who hear the word of God and keep it. Why does Jesus do that? Right, why does he kind of distance himself from his own family unit? Even though he does love them, even though he does care for them, even though he is perfectly righteous and, and he's good to them. Why does he do that? It's because there's a greater family he cares about. Or even just what Jesus says about marriage in Matthew twenty-two thirty, He says that there, in heaven there is no marriage. That's interesting, isn't it? For all that we idolize marriage, right? And marriage is important, it is. But for all the idol making we do when it comes to marriage, to think it's not even in heaven. We are not given over to marriage in heaven. And don't even, can't even forget about what Paul says, right? In 1 Corinthians 7, that it's actually good to remain unmarried. Right, he doesn't say it's bearable or like, oh, we'll still love you if you're not married. No, he says it's good to remain unmarried. We have Jesus, we have Paul saying these, even, even these sorts of very countercultural things about marriage. Things that should rub you a little bit the wrong way if you're, any, if you're steeped at all in our culture. And I think this is the last one. I'm, I know I'm, I'm listing off a lot of verses, but I want this to be crystal clear for us. Mark chapter 10, verses 29 to 30, Jesus summarizes the point well. Jesus says to his disciples, basically, some of you are going to, because of me and because of the gospel, some of you are actually going to lose homes, Fathers, mothers, sisters, children. 
Because of me, you might even lose some of your family. You might, you might have to leave some of your family. Children, fathers, mothers, sisters, brothers. And perhaps that's even some of you in this, in this congregation. And ask any uh, Muslim convert to Christianity. They've experienced that big time. And Jesus actually says, some of you, that's gonna happen to you, but for those of you, if that happened to you, you'll receive a hundredfold now in this time houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children. Jesus is saying, hey, even if you lose some of your family unit because of me, I'm gonna give you even more. I'm gonna give you even more family. I'm gonna give you even better family. He's making loud and clear that the church does not exist simply for the betterment of the family unit. Right, that there is an even more important family, which is the church. And, I, and Jesus really debunks this myth that really lies in all of our hearts. Maybe we don't even realize that we adhere to that myth. Maybe we, we, don't, we wouldn't say it out loud, but that this, the church is all about the family ultimately. All about the family unit. All about making a family or growing my family. And you know how, how you know you adhere to that myth? You know, just, it's, it's the regular practices, right? Like, uh, go, people who say, you know what, you know, I'm going to find my spouse at church. That's why I'm going to go to church. I'm going to find a good woman there. I'm going to find a good man there. That's why I need to go to church. Right? That, that exists. That means the church exists for me to create my family. Or, uh, once you are married, my marriage is not very good. That's why I'm going to go to church. I'm going to go to Pastor Jimmy. Right? I need a better marriage. Right? Or maybe once you have kids... Now you, now you want to make sure you have good kids. You know, and of course, it's, it's conventional wisdom. This is, this is often the case that even people who leave the church, once they have kids, they end up coming back. Maybe that's some of you. Once they have kids, they realize, oh man, I have these little human beings under my care and, and I have to make sure they come out all right. Let's go to church. Right? And of course, these are all good things in and of themselves. It's great to find your spouse at church. I sure did, right? That's where I met Priscilla. It's great to have a better marriage thanks to church. It's great to have better kids thanks to church. But the point that Jesus is making here is that that can't be all that it is. That can't be all that church is about. That the church cannot just be about building up my family. No, the church is the family that we build up. The church is that family. And... You know, for those of you, you know, we have people in the congregation from different walks of life. Maybe some of you are married, some of you have kids, some of you are single, some of you are married without kids, whatever it may be. And I want to encourage you, please, I know that there are seasons. Of course there are seasons, right? Once you, when you have a newborn baby or, or when you've just gone through a crisis or lost a loved one, there's seasons where it's just, you can't do anything. But please, please don't think that... You know, as a single person, as a young person, that's when you're really involved in church. That's when you're really part of this community. That's when you really need connection and intimacy and growth. But then once I get married and once I have kids, I ra- now all I got to do is raise up my family. And that's it. That's my spiritual life. Please don't listen to that myth. Right? We are called, even when you have your own family, we are called to treat the church as family. That's what we're called to do. Uh, earlier, maybe about a week ago, I watched the movie uh, Deadpool 2. Now, I can't really recommend it, especially from the pulpit. Uh, I enjoyed it, though. It was fun. It was a fun movie. Priscilla hated it, so it shows she's way more godly than me. Um, but fun, it's funny. As I was preparing the sermon, I actually thought of Deadpool 2. Mild, mild, mild spoiler alert. But in Deadpool 2, it starts with 
Deadpool uh, wanting to start this, his own family, his own biological family. But by the end of the movie, he, he realizes he's, he has created this family with his team, his team of weird mutants, right? And I thought to myself, well, oh, that reminds me of, of the church just a little bit, a little bit. Or how about another uh, famous movie that I love, one of my favorite movies, The Fast and the Furious. Dominic Toretto, Dom, played by uh, Vin Diesel. He has a very famous line. He says it in every single movie. I don't have friends. I got family. Right? I don't have friends. I got family. Right? These aren't just my friends. This isn't just my little group. This is my family. And who would have ever thought in the history of the universe that Deadpool and Vin Diesel and Jesus could have something in common? That they all recognize, they all claim, they all, they all hold to this idea that it's not just about my little group, my little, my little family unit, but it's actually, there's a much bigger family that I love and I belong to, that I'm connected to, that I take care of. And obviously, these are silly, silly examples, Deadpool, Vin Diesel, but even the silly examples speak to a need in all of our hearts, that we all want to belong somewhere. We all want to belong to something. We all want connection. We all want intimacy. We all need it. And Deadpool, he finds his community and intimacy in this weird group of X-Men rejects. And, 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 and Fast and the Furious, they find it with their love of cars. Sure, that's great. But you and I, we have something that unites us that surpasses any hobby or interest or background experience or even family or even our biological family. This surpasses all the gospel, what unites us, what, what Paul says later in Ephesians, that we have one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one hope, one God, and one Father of all. That's what unites us. That's what makes us one. That's what makes us not just a group or uh, this, this little gathering, but it makes us truly a family. We gotta believe that. If we, if we believe what Paul says, we got to believe that. That that makes us truly a family and it has to be much more than just my family unit. Because nothing can unite us like the gospel. That's the second implication. First, it was uh, if the church is a family, it can't simply just be about my individual journey. If the church is a family, secondly, then it can't just be about my family unit. But lastly, the third implication, if the church really is a family, then the church is not simply about the people who are just like you. We started this passage uh, in Ephesians 2 in verse 17 where Paul says, Jesus came and preached peace to those who were far off and to those who were near. And in the context of this passage, it's very clear that those who were far off were the, are the Gentiles and those who are near are the Jews, two very different ethnic groups. And the whole point of what Paul is saying throughout Ephesians 2 is that because of what Jesus did, because of his death on the cross, because of his righteousness, he actually breaks down the dividing wall. And Jews and Gentiles together are actually considered family. And that's mind-blowing for anyone in the ancient world to read that. Right, Jews and Gentiles were very different, very separate. Jews actually had a famous prayer that they were, they were supposed to pray every morning, that thanking God that they were not born a Gentile. Right, Thank you, Lord, that I'm not a Gentile, right? It's not, and it's not even this arrogant prayer. It's truly this gratitude because the, the Jews were near to God. The Gentiles were far. 
And now all of a sudden, because of Jesus, even these two very different groups, these two different ethnic groups, these two very different identities, people who identify themselves very differently, even they are called family. And here we see that the church as family means we can actually have unity and diversity. We can actually have both, unity and diversity. And of course, we, in this specific instance, Jews and Greeks, we see it's ethnic. It's an ethnic diversity. It's, it is. And they get to both belong to Christ. But I want to argue there's all sorts of diversity we can experience. There's, we can have diversity with different ages, different life stages, different socioeconomic backgrounds. In fact, in Titus chapter 2, we see this beautiful picture of intergenerational ministry where, where we see... Older men and younger men and older women and younger women and they're called, and basically it's this picture of them being spiritual fathers and spiritual mothers and spiritual sons and spiritual daughters. And we even see Paul himself, he has a spiritual son, Timothy, right? He says to Timothy, you are my son. Paul never talks about biological children, but he's, he calls Timothy his son, And he's not like, you're my son in Christ, right? You're my son because of Jesus. No, he just says, you are my son, period. And we see that here, that we are, as if church is to be family, we are called to be spiritual fathers and mothers and spiritual children to each other. I hope that can be the case for you. I know that our our church is relatively young and our age gaps aren't that much. But I hope that you can start to experience that slowly but surely. That you can start saying, you know what? He, he, that guy, he really is my spiritual father. She really is my spiritual mother. Or how about for you guys, as we all get older, which is inevitable, that you can all be spiritual mothers and fathers to somebody. That, that our younger generation can, can grow up in Christ Central saying, of course I have my mom and my dad, I love them. But I have so many mothers and so many fathers who love me and care for me, who pray for me. Isn't that what we're vowing whenever we do infant baptism? Isn't that what we're vowing? And you know, for myself, I got to really experience uh, the beauty of the unity and the diversity of the church when I was in youth group, when I first started getting involved at church uh, in my youth group years, my later teen years. And you might be thinking, you know, if you know my background, I went to this church called uh, CPC. Have you ever heard of it, CPC? Uh, It's a Korean church, right? And you might be thinking, how the heck did you experience diversity? Maybe unity, but how, about, how did you experience diversity in a youth group at a Korean church? Everyone's the same ethnic background, relatively the same age, all teenagers. But I'll tell you this, I, when I first started getting involved in church, I experienced unity and diversity because I was coming out of the most homogenous group that you could be a part of. The most homogenous group. And that is wannabe gangsters, Right? <laughs> I was coming out of a group of wannabe gangsters. And there's nobody more uniform than wannabe gangsters. We all talk the same. We all look the same. We all dress the same. We all had the same hairstyle, right? The long bangs. I even had like a little tail. Uh, but I have wavy hair, so it didn't even look good. Um, but we were all exact. And you know what? We were even all the same age. We didn't tolerate anyone a different age than us. Um, we graciously allowed like one or two guys who were one year younger than us into our group. But that was huge mercy and favor. Right? We only hung out with people just like us. And when I got to church, really for one of the first times of getting involved in, in church, 
I got shocked because I was at this Bible study and this little seventh grader comes up to me. I was an 11th grader at this point. A little seventh grader comes up to me and just starts talking to me. Like just talking to me, just chatting with me. And truly in my mind, I was thinking, why do you think you can talk to me? I did not give you permission to talk to me. Who are you? You're so young. You can't talk to me. That, that was my mindset. And funny enough, that, that little seventh grader actually ended up becoming my sister-in-law much later, many, many years later. Um, but I was, during this period, I was really seeing, despite it being a Korean church, despite it being all teenagers, it was truly a diverse group. You had nerds. You had athletes. You had the cool rebels like me. You had the squares, the goody-goodies. You had different ages, even though it's within high school and junior high. You had kids from well-off families. You had kids from struggling families. And yet here we were all together, liking each other, enjoying each other's company, and most importantly, worshiping God together, really uniting under this banner of one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one Father of all. And that's what brought us together. And truly, it was a beautiful picture. It really was of unity and diversity. And I hope and pray that for all of you here, for all of us, that as we get older, that, that, doesn't, uh, that doesn't reverse. That all of a sudden, now that we're older, now I, I tend to hang out with people of my same social economic background. Right? As I get older, I tend to hang out with people with the same views as me, same political affiliations as me. I hope we don't lose that. I hope we don't lose the sense that if the church is a family, then it's called to be diverse. It's called to be people who are very different. We're called to love people who are very different than me, than you. And of course, if the church is supposed to be a family, that also very much implies it's going to be hard. It's not easy. Family, I don't, know, I don't know what your family background is like, but I'm sure we can all agree family is not easy. There are very different personalities. People rub each other the wrong way. People don't agree. It's not, as we give this lofty goal from Jesus himself that we are called to be a family like this, intimate and connected and joined together like this, it's not going to happen overnight. And we know that. Paul knows that. That's why even though he says these beautiful words about coming together, joining together, being built up, becoming the household of God in Ephesians chapter 2, the rest of Ephesians, he's constantly exhorting, exhorting, be humble with one another, be honest with one another, forgive one another, be patient and bear each other. It's something we're called to build up to. It's not overnight. It's something that Jesus calls us to be built up to. So those are the three implications for us. If the church really is a family, it really is a family. Not just something we, we say, we, we think it sounds nice, it's a good sentiment. Oh, this is my family. Or not just some theme at a retreat, but this really is our culture. This really is our identity, that the church is supposed to be like this. Then the implications are, it's not just about my individual journey. It's not even just about my family unit. And third, it's not just about being with the people who are just like me. That's what a family looks like. Diverse but unified. Reaching everybody in the family, not just my little group. 
And I just have real quick, just real quick, three practical applications for us if we want to do this. I'm sure you could even guess what some of these applications are. If we really seek to be a family like this, once again, not because we're so good at it or because we're such a warm and nice and friendly people, but really because Jesus calls us to this. This is what the church is supposed to look like. This is what he created it to be. Here's some applications. First, cherish your small group. Cherish your small group. We're a relatively large church. We're not huge, but you know, it's hard to really know everybody, right? especially across our two campuses. That's why we really need our small groups. And I've, I've chose, chosen the word cherish intentionally. Right? The idea is don't just sign up for small group. Right? Or don't just show up a couple times for small group, but cherish it. Yes, sign up. You got to sign up first. But sign up, show up, and then keep showing up. And recognize it does take time. You don't get family instantly. It takes time. It takes effort. It takes presence. It takes vulnerability. But cherish your small group. And I know it's like the worst timing ever because it's small groups are ending and then we go on summer break. But hey, may this exhortation fuel you until the fall when we start again. And would you just sign up real good then and show up real good and keep showing up then, right? Cherish it. And of course, it's not just about our CCSC small groups. Just whatever, whatever brothers and sisters you can come together with, right? It's all good. But at least with our church, you have this set way given to you, kind of handed to you. Here's small groups. Here's the way we become family. Here's the way we do life together. Here's the way that, that we can really rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. Cherish that. Secondly, second application, practice hospitality. Practice hospitality. Many, many, many Christian thinkers and thought leaders have said lately that we as the church have lost this art of hospitality. Right? Because it's really hard to feel like family if we're never under the same roof. Right? We need to bring people in, especially if you're able, if you have the resources to be hospitable. And hospitality is not just like these big events, these extravagant once-in-a-while events, but something we do regularly. Have people in your home regularly, people of different life stages, people uh, from different backgrounds. Have them in your home regularly. Practice hospitality. And of course, small groups is actually a way that that happens very naturally. Practice hospitality. You know what? It's, it's a great way we become family, and, and the Bible calls us to it. Right? We entertain even angels in our hospitality. And lastly, the last application is don't wait. Don't wait. Right? Don't wait to say, you know what? You're so right. You know what? Jesus is so right. You know what? The Bible is so right. Church is supposed to be a family. Church is supposed to be intimate and connected. So hurry up and do it. Do it for me. Come on. Get, get, connect me. Love me. Treat me like family, right? Don't wait like that. You be the one. Initiate. Not everyone's going to be the best at it. We're, the church is not going to be the best at it uh, as an organization. Don't wait. Be the one who initiates that sort of love, that sort of vulnerability, those sorts of steps. Cherish your small group. Practice hospitality and just don't wait. Don't wait. Don't wait on hospitality. Don't wait uh, for someone to reach you into their small group. Take, take action for that one. There's a pastor by the name of Sam Albury. He's from England. And uh, he has same-sex attraction. And he, he's pretty well-known, and especially if you read uh, the Gospel Coalition, uh, he's a pretty well-known pastor in that group. And he, he just has a wealth of valuable insights uh, about the church and community and even what it means for the church to be a family. 
uh, especially as someone who struggles with same-sex attraction. Of course, and he's, con- he's uh, committed to the gospel, committed to the word of God, and so he has resolved to, uh, to live a celibate life as a result of his commitment to Christ, uh, despite his same-sex attraction. And he, his views and people like him, whether they have same-sex attraction or not, just it sheds such great light on some of our blind spots as a church community. Because here's a man who has, because of Jesus, because he loves Jesus, because Christ is enough, here's a man who has said, you know what? I'm never going to have my own family unit. I'm never going to get married. I'm never going to have kids. And yet he's part of this church that truly he feels is his family. And I hope and pray that you, we all can be that. That we all can feel like, hey, I belong to, belong to something. I have, I have intimacy. I have connection. Even if I never create my own family unit, even if I never get married, even if I never have kids. Here's a quote from him. I have it written for us. Uh, it's a great quote from an interview that he gave. Uh, he writes this, or he says this. Tragically, we live in a cultural moment in the West where we have funneled all our thinking about intimacy into only one expression of it, the romantic or sexual relationship. In other words, when you say intimacy, that's, all, that's the first thing and perhaps the only thing we think of. Romance, sex. This is now virtually the only place where people believe they can find and express intimacy in romantic or sexual relationship. So, therefore, we need to make sure our church family really is a family. And then, of course, he quotes the verse that we, uh, we already read. Jesus promises that no one who has left home or brothers or sisters or mothers or father or children or fields for me and the gospel will fail to receive a hundred times those things. So it should be the case that anyone who has joined our churches, the churches of Christ, is able to say they've experienced an increase in intimacy and community. May that be our goal. Anyone who walks through the doors of our church, not overnight, but eventually, surely, slowly, but truly, they become, as as we just read, they can experience an increase in intimacy and community. Why? Because we have a new relationship in Christ because of what, once again, not because of what I've done, not because we're such a warm and friendly and nice and good people, but because we have a good father. Right? Because we have a good father who, who adopts us into his household, who makes us his children, who gives us the greatest of intimacy with the greatest being in the world. And we can actually cry out to him, Abba, Father. We don't have to cower in fear and in distance but we can actually have this intimate relationship with him because we have a good father, not because we're so good, because we have a good elder brother who would give up himself, who would lay himself down and sacrifice even his life to make you and me his brothers and sisters. Because we have a good father, because we have a good shepherd and elder brother, would that be, would that be why we have any sense of hope and, and, and encouragement and strength to achieve this, to really become a place where we can really say, this is a family. Maybe not everyone is best friends with every single person, but in this church at Christ Central, I can really say, I have family. Would that be our goal? 
Would that be our goal because of the shed blood of Christ? Because he made that possible. Not because of anything in us, but because everything in him. Let's pray.